Father, I want to thank you so much that we have the opportunity to be here, Lord, to focus in on your word and to see your glory and beauty presented before us. Uh, we're so very thankful for you and the amazing things that you do in our lives. I pray that we would spend this time really fixing our minds on you and your goodness, that that would allow us to elevate our thoughts, to worship and praise you, to really become in awe and splendor of who you are and what you're doing in our lives, God. We love you so much, and we're very thankful for you. And in your name, amen. All right. So Revelation chapter 4, Bo went into it last week, uh, and I believe he made it to verse 4. We're just flying through this book, as you guys can see, at warp speed. But essentially what's happened is after the letters to the seven churches, which we had been going through prior to last week, Uh, Now we've moved into a very different aspect or a different portion of the book of Revelation. So now John is no longer addressing the church. And as Bo brought up last week, the church is not mentioned again in the book of Revelation. There is some speculation that the church does show up in a symbolic form, actually in this chapter, which we'll talk about in a second. But other than that, the church just isn't present within this book uh, because this for a lot of people, represents the end of the church age. God has taken John up into his throne room, and this is a picture, a symbolic picture of the rapture, God gathering his church to himself and experiencing awe and splendor within his presence. And so John gets this this view of God. He gets this view of the throne room of God, and he's writing about it, and it's incredible, and it's amazing. And I don't know how many of you guys have, have read through encounters with God contained within the scriptures, uh, guys like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, or in Ezekiel, which we'll uh, read portions of Ezekiel for you guys tonight so you can see that. But essentially, when you're coming in contact with a being like God who is beyond our comprehension, he's beyond our understanding, he's beyond anything that we can possibly put our minds upon, it has to be dripping with symbolism. So John is taking something that is inexpressible, and he is delivering it to us in a way that's more accessible, right? So these, these symbols are deep in meaning. They're, they're really drenched in Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament symbolism. And so we're going to try to unpack a little bit for you guys here tonight, but there's a lot there, right? There's a lot there. So let me just read the section. I'll just read verse 5 to the end, and we'll start taking it apart piece by piece. So verse 5 says this. And from the throne, so this is the throne of God, proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures each had six wings, and they were full of eyes around and within. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. 
so a lot going on, right, Sean? What do you what do you get from the first verse there with the thunderings and the lightnings? Well, like Revelation has a habit of doing, these are Old Testament references galore. It's the last book of the Bible, so they're allowed to make a few references to the verses and books before it. What's interesting about this one is there's a lot being referenced and alluded to, not just in regards to the Old Testament carte blanche, but specific areas, quotations even. Um, It's worth noting, and uh, appreciate you starting without me, by the way, uh, last week Peter uh, your Peter, Bo talked about the significance of some of the details that were given to us about this individual, but of all the things that were told about the one on this throne, we don't actually have a name. Uh, it's not specifying to us who this figure is. He's obviously got a nice deck chair, but apart from that, we don't know anything about him but what we're told. And the Bible doesn't treat us like children. It assumes that if you catch certain characteristics, you're going to catch also the character. So what do we know about this individual so far? Well, like what we talked about last week, verse 5 picks up the theme by saying, from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. This was the same uh, ambiance, if you will, that accompanied God in Mount Sinai. This is in Exodus chapter 20. But what's also interesting was another, I hesitate to say furniture because of our handling of it, but it says this lamp of fire, seven lamps specifically, which were burning before the throne, and it goes on to not leave that to guesswork. These are the seven spirits of God. Now we ask, okay, so seven spirits of God, so there's eight gods assuming the one on the throne isn't also a part of the lamp. This is where we have to be specific about what we mean and also be careful in how the passage presents itself. Because like we said, Old Testament references, the Old Testament tabernacle was made as a model specifically of the heavenly scene. And when the throne of God, represented by the Ark of the Covenant, was obviously a direct manifestation of God's glory. There was also the table of showbread, which was also, by the way, supposed to be handled just like the Ark of the Covenant. They weren't to touch it. They were to put rings through it and carry it very specifically and sacredly. And there was what was called the lampstand. We associate it with the menorah today, but that's a little different. The lampstand that was in the tabernacle had seven lamps, obviously, on it, seven prongs off of the one stand, and this was always supposed to be lit to, in a sense, be the ancient equivalent of the sign, we're open, come on in, or welcome, or whatever the equivalent would be. But the presence of God was directed by that because there would also be light in the tabernacle. Now, the seven spirits of God here, it literally tells us what's in reference. And that's also a callback to chapter one. But when it says, and it makes the reference and mention, Jesus introducing himself and the seven spirits which are before his throne, we have to be informed to a point about this, because if we let the text say something that other texts don't also say, it can get away from us. So what I want to encourage those who are taking notes to do is to note when the Holy Spirit is referred to, it's not as a piece of furniture, it's not as a just welcome in sign to the presence of God. He's referred to as God in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. The book of Job, chapter 33 and verse 4, refers to the Spirit of God as the giver of life. It notes him as being omnipresent in Psalm 139, 7 through 10. David saying, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 
and also noting his eternal nature. He didn't have a beginning, he won't have an end in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. But there's another argument that these seven lamps, if you will, before God are reference to the seven attributes. And like significance to other numbers we'll get into in a minute, seven obviously the number of completion, of holiness, something being complete and whole set uh, without imperfection within itself, completely satisfied and fulfilling. What's interesting about that is in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, it was a description of God's attributes, something that the Messiah would also share with God. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Isaiah 11 and verse 2 says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So notice the spirit isn't him. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and of might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So noting that completion, then, we see this complete attribute of God, or this complete characteristic of God describing the Holy Spirit. I think there's some thing to be regarded about that, but we won't just say this is the interpretation and everyone else who disagrees with us is a heretic. Note how we're handling the text. Go home and look at the text for yourself and test these points because the Holy Spirit is just as much God and worthy of reverence and respect as uh, Jesus and the Father. But noting as well the throne, the one on the throne, isn't the lampstand, isn't the Holy Spirit, according to our interpretation. Nor is it the Son, who will be introduced to hopefully next week, which by process of elimination leaves us with the Father. But we don't want to come to too much of a conclusion on that. We want to keep reading. So, so far, we've been given characteristics, which Bo covered last week. We've also been given references to the Exodus, a very, very direct reference to the glory of God. So it's very heavily suggested that the one on this throne is, in fact, God creator. But it's also noting the seven lampstands as having characteristics of God. So who specifically is present here? So that would bring us to verse 6. Real quick before we move on to verse 6, I I wanted to point something out. Uh, For a while, for a while, uh, full disclosure, I I did not like the book of Revelation uh, for most of my Christian life. And the reason why is because I'm just this very hard-headed, black-and-white, logical individual that doesn't like artistic expression or anything like that. I I hated it. So I'm always just like, just come out and say it. Just come out and say what you mean. And so when I read books like this, which are so full of symbols, I'm like, gosh, my eyes would glaze over. I hated the prophets. I hated Revelation. I was just like, I know I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to like these things, but I, I didn't, I didn't like those books. You know, I'd give me Romans, give me, give me hard facts, give me, give me information, just say what you mean. And it wasn't until later in my life that I discovered why these things are so important. You know, why, why is artistic expression so important, and why does God have so much of it within his scriptures? The longest book in our Bible is the book of Psalms. Uh, you know, the, the, the prophets and the book of Revelation, as I said, they're filled with poetic imagery. Uh, they're, they're dripping with it. And it would be impossible for us as Christians to say that we can just throw these things out or ignore them because to throw them out and not to learn how to interpret these things, how to read them and be blessed by them is to throw out a lot of your Bible. And so when you, when you look at symbols, when you look at poetry, when you look at metaphor, what it's designed to do is it's not designed to convey facts to you only as Sean's done a really excellent job of doing, is showing you guys that there's a lot of information here. 
right? There's a lot of uh, theological, a lot of rational information contained within these symbols, and we need to wrap our heads around them because they're important. They edify us. They build us up in our knowledge of God. But don't miss this. When you're reading symbols, when you're reading poetry, the main point is not to convey to you information. It's actually to convey to you directly emotion. So John could have just said, uh, I saw a big chair and the guy on it was really powerful. And that would be the end of chapter four. Uh, but instead, he uses this imagery, lightnings, thunderings, voices. So you, you have this idea of, and by the way, the previous verses talk about rainbows coming out of this throne. So rainbows are, you know, they're associated with storms. You have a, a massive storm and then rainbow comes afterwards. And they're it's also... a quotation of Ezekiel 1. That's right. And it's also a reference to the covenant that God made with Noah, right? The rainbow is a symbol that God won't flood the world anymore. And so you see this amazing calm, this amazing beauty coming from the throne. But then you also see this amazing power being demonstrated through lightning and thundering, right? Uh, you know, we here in Tucson get the monsoons, and when monsoons get going, and you get those those really powerful thunders and lightnings, man, it, it could be very scary. It could be very unnerving. Uh, I remember one time when I was in Afghanistan, we had uh, NVGs. We had night vision goggles, and a lot of people don't know this. Night vision goggles don't create light. It's not like you're, you're putting these things on, and you can see, and no one else can. What it actually does is it actually enhances ambient light. That's what they're designed to do. So if you turn them on in a bright room, you actually wouldn't see anything because there, it would just be so much brightness that you wouldn't be able to discern anything. But when you're in a dark room, the tiniest light is amplified. And so I remember being up on post this one night. There's no electricity up there. So I'm, I'm standing there, and I got my night vision goggles on, and a lightning storm broke out. And so I'm looking at like this dark desolation and all of a sudden all these lightning bolts just start going all across this valley that I was looking over and it was dazzling. It was amazing. I was like, whoa, I felt like I was in a psychedelic show or something like that. But I was also freaked out. I was like, this is scary. You know, for a little bit, I forgot I was being hunted by the Taliban. I was like, man, I got wiped out by God here. You know, it was it's really, really terrifying stuff to be in the presence of something completely out of your control. And I think lightning and thunder, especially for the ancient person, would be a great symbol of nature and its raw, undiminished fury and power. And we see it totally tamed and controlled by this one on the throne, that even the most chaotic part of nature is just completely calmed within him. And then out of this throne proceed voices. You get this otherworldly kind of almost alien or foreign idea of this this being, that he's not like us, right? Whatever's, whatever's coming out of him is not like us. In other passages, it describes God's voice like many waters. So I, I don't think that what it's describing here is like God is a schizo or something, and there's like multiple, like, you know, some weird, weird uh, voice or something like that. I think what it's getting at is like, you know, when you hear a crowd of people shouting together, if you go to a sporting match or something like that, and you, you hear people like yelling together, and the voice just carries this large amount, like almost like a roar, even though everyone in the audience is only speaking this level. Combined, it becomes this really massive and, like I said, almost like an otherworldly kind of a thing. And so he's sensing this. So again, we don't, we're not just getting John saying, God is powerful. But when you take apart these symbols and you really look at them, you're like, this is what it's like to be in the presence of God. Like it's, 
it's terrifying. You know, many, many people are like, ah, I want to see God. You know, I want to see God face to face. Every time someone sees God face to face, they are freaked out, right? They are freaked out because our God is an awesome God. He is a mighty God. He is a powerful God, and we shouldn't forget that. Yeah, let, me, let me read Exodus 20 and verse 18 here. Now, when the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of a trumpet, and the mountain smoking, when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Then Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So noting the presence of God is associated with these symbols, that these references, quotations literally, are identifying this one on the throne, the same method, if you will, for how Jesus identified himself as God, not by saying, I am God, but saying this is something that could only be associated with the God of Israel. And he continues in verse 6, which we will continue to? Yes. Uh, it says... <laughs> no, we're done. That no. was it. <laughs> Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Now, I'm going to pause there because I know you want to get to the freaky cherubim things, but let's first clarify this one too. The reference to the sea surrounding the throne also was something that accompanied God's glory in the Exodus. It isn't saying this is God on the throne, but it's leaving no room for reinterpretation who is on the throne, who could rightly be described this way. And again, I'll read the passage. So you don't have to take my word for it. Exodus 24 and verse 9. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. They saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. It was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles and the children of Israel, he did not lay uh, his hand. They saw God, and they ate and drank. So note this point, blue, sapphire, right? As far as the eye could see like the heavens in their expanse, like the sky but turned upside down, and clear. Sounds like an ocean to me, <laughs> but note these pictures. It was yeah. the closest thing to something well beyond you right. that they could grasp. Right, and, and just picking up on that point, uh, to the ancient world, the sea, the waters, was like the complete embodiment of chaos and the unknown. Right. If you read other creation stories, uh, if you read like the Enuma Elish or if you read, uh, say, any of the other Greek mythologies or anything like that, or even Hindu mythology in the creation of the world, they're always rising. The world is always rising out of the waters. Right. Uh, same in the scriptures. Now, in the scriptures, we believe that that's literal, right? that literally happened. But the reason why it's happening in their mythology is because they pictured the sea as the most terrifying unknown, right? It represented the unknown. That's why almost every mythology has this idea of sea monsters. And even in the Bible, Satan is sometimes depicted as Leviathan, which was a Hebrew uh, sea monster. That's, that's what it was. So this is, again, it represents this chaos, this unknown, this swirling vortex of like of fear and scariness. Well, the Antichrist and, will be described in a few chapters as a beast rising up out of the sea. That's right. Absolutely. So you have this, this very interesting symbol of something that, like I said, is normally chaotic, normally totally out of control. But John sees it, and in the Exodus, Moses and the elders saw it as this still, calm glass completely flattened, completely tamed 
by, again, the one who sits on the throne. Uh, no more chaos. No more, no more fear. Now, Jesus actually gives us the interpretation of this. So uh, at, at one point, actually at two points, right, Jesus' disciples almost drown. And in both instances, Jesus calms the sea. And when it says he calms the sea, the word there is very emphatic. It doesn't just mean like, well, you know, like there's a couple ripples or something like that. It meant like glass, like completely still. And in one of the instances, Jesus actually walks on the water before he does this. So again, this is just a picture of God's total mastery of anything that we as human beings feel is out of our control or chaotic. So when you, when you read these things and you look at God and his glory and you say whatever chaos or whatever weirdness is going on in this world or in your life, you could look at this and say, like, this is God, like his throne is over the chaos. It's over the uncertainty. And in his presence, it's stilled. It's calm. It's controlled, right? Nothing happens outside of the will of God. And that's like the, this, this incredibly beautiful image. So like I said, this is all to convey like an emotion. What emotion did John feel in the presence of God? And we see this really cool picture, right? In one instance, you see terror, but in another instance, you see calm. So God appears. And again, you see this in Isaiah and Ezekiel and all these other passages that when they first see God, they're afraid. And then God comes and comforts them and they feel this amazing calm. And that's what's happened to us in God, in our relationship with God. Coming to God as a Christian means at one point we looked up and we saw God and we said, oh my gosh, I am accountable for my sin. I am accountable for my sin. And God is a mighty God. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. And that terrified us. And then in that second of terror, we see the cross and we see that wrath, we see that violence that we knew we had coming towards us poured out on the sun. And we feel this calm. We feel this peace. We feel this unbelievable amount of joy rise up in us. And that's why this passage then transitions to worship, which is with the freaky images, as you said, <laughs> as yeah. you put it. <laughs> and uh, continuing on at that point as well, um, Ezekiel 1 and verse 22 also references the sea along with the creatures that we're about to read. So again, going to verse 6, it says, and uh, well, continue <laughs> where we left off. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. Now, don't think eyeball monsters here. We'll, we'll continue on to verse 8, but just understand that we've had a lot of symbols so far. It's not like God's this uh, whirlpool of water with storms above and atop him. And in the center, there's this conglomeration of a red and white crystal and all that stuff. No, it's obviously meant to communicate a point of glory. But continuing on, it says in verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now, I'm not emphasizing the like because I'm a teenager. He, John doesn't know what this is, but he's comparing it to the closest equivalent of four very dramatic and significant creatures in a Jewish context. And continuing on in verse 8, it says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So these creatures, 
And by the way, don't think of creature as an animal. It's making a distinction. These things aren't human, but they were created. They're creation. That's what creature implies with it. What these things are, are what Jews would classify as cherub or cherubim, plural, if you prefer. What's interesting about the eyes before we get into the animal aspect, because I know that's probably the most dramatic part about all this. It's just like, do they all blink at once? What's going on here? Uh, <laughs> there's been some portrayals of them in artwork, and I, I find it scary. But um, what I think is being communicated, and I'm willing to be wrong about this, but like significance of the symbols of the glory of God, these creatures are being emphasized as spiritual now, the reason I would come to that conclusion, I'm sure you've heard the saying, uh, the eye is the window of the soul. That's not the Bible, by the way, that's William Shakespeare. But the statement comes from a uh, observation Jesus made, which is biblical, where he said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 23, the lamp of the body is the eye, the, the glory, the light that emanates from it. Therefore, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Therefore, the light that is in you is darkness. How great is that darkness? He's making this point about the eye is the closest thing you can get to the core of someone's being. It's the, as Shakespeare said, it gives you a chance to see the nature of somebody. Uh, I illustrated this with our junior high and high schoolers once by mocking a smile and then frowning, but my eyes were still smiling and you could tell I was happy. Then I frowned, I gave a depressed look, and I smiled, but it came off as creepy. Why? The eyes don't match the face. And that's a reflection of the heart, or the, the character, the core of your being. So when I think the passage is making this emphasis on these creatures being full of eyes, I think it's an emphasis on them being pure spirit. It, they're, they're not physical material beings they're pure spiritual beings and that the eyes communicate this but uh continuing on with the point uh one, one more thing I'll, I'll add to that and again this is this is uh just my look at this particular symbol not only of them being particular spirit but there there are other beings in the bible that are depicted as being full of eyes like in ezekiel the wheels uh, which are living beings, are full of eyes. And as Sean said, the eyes not only give you a glimpse into the person, but the eyes are also how we see things, how we perceive the world. And so when you look at these things, again, the emotion that you're going to feel when you read that description of being full of eyes is uneasy, right? You feel unnerved by that. And uh, immediately, because it's like, man, it sounds like a, uh, a fly, you know, like it, it sounds very creepy. It sounds very like I don't I don't like the sound of a creature that looks like that. That sounds very disturbing to me when I picture it in my mind. But one of the reasons why it disturbs us is the same reason why Adam and Eve put on coverings in the Garden of Eden. Right. The reason why the idea of eyes looking at us freak us out is because we know that we're fallen, we're sinful and we're ashamed of who we are and how we, we exist. We don't want to be exposed, right? We don't want to be exposed to the world. Now, now again, I'm not uh, encouraging a 1984-type world, but, you know, the more and more people talk about, like, oh, man, the government, they're going to spy on you. they got cameras everywhere. There's cameras in your phone. There's cameras everywhere. Everyone can see every move you make. The reason why that unnerves us, you know, there's, there's one reason of, like, it's none of their business. I don't want them to see what I'm doing. But there's another aspect of you that's, like, maybe I don't want them to see what I'm doing because I don't really like what I'm doing. You know, like a little bit of shame there. 
a little bit of un- uneasiness about your, your behavior. But you have to remember that in the garden, the description that's made of the garden is naked and unashamed, right? Completely exposed and transparent, yet without any shame or guilt encompassing that exposure. So creatures that are made of eyes, right? They have eyes within and out. It's a picture not only of, it's a window to, their, to them, so they're totally exposed to us, but we're totally exposed to them. And that's what heaven's all about. Heaven is about exposure, right? Heaven is about transparency, no secrets, no manipulation, no darkness within heaven. Everything is made light in God's presence. And there's a, there's a good news to that. The reason why we don't like these things, right? The reason why we don't like to be exposed is because we see ourselves as being ugly, hideous, marred, right? There's something wrong with us that we don't want people to see. In heaven, God's going to make us so perfect, so in his image, that the more light that is cast on us, the more perfection people are going to see in us, right? That's the work that God's doing in us. We will be exposed and unashamed because of how pure Jesus Christ is making us. You know, uh, I, I, I don't even ever think about this, this kind of thing, but, uh, you know, I, I went months and months and months, even years without mirrors, uh, when I was in the Marines and, uh, you know, in my house is funny, uh, me and my wife finally got a mirror. We, we went like three years without a mirror in our house. And, you know, it's, it's just because I've been dragging my feet and I'm just like, I don't really, I really care. So I, I don't really think about stuff like that. But, uh, at any rate, you know, uh, when I take pictures with someone who's more conscious about that and there's this idea of filters and stuff and I, I didn't even know they're like, Oh, the lighting's off. And I'm like, uh, you know, what does that even mean, the lighting's off? You know, I, I see the light, like, how could the lighting be off? But one of the things that, that uh, people are afraid of is too much exposure, right? When the light's too bright, it magnifies imperfections, right? We like the filters. We like the dimness because it masks imperfections. But what if we lived in a world where there were no imperfections, right? You would not be afraid of exposure anymore. Now, uh, real quick side note on this. As Christians, as Christians... Because of the inherent work of God in our lives, that we are positionally righteous before the Lord. And Bo made this point last week as well. Because we are positionally righteous before God and perfected through his work alone and not ours, we have boldness to expose ourselves in the here and now. In other words, we have boldness to expose our failures because we're like, I want to get there. I want to be more like that. And the way I get to be more like that is not by hiding my imperfections, but it's by exposing them and allowing the church community in my life to help me deal with them, right? So if if we come into church and it's a place of darkness, it's a place of fear, of exposure, we're doing it wrong. Church is supposed to mirror heaven. Heaven is a place of exposure, but the exposure is always good. Exposure is always good. So I I just wanted to throw that out. Yeah, uh, continuing on with their characteristics, like you said, in us reflecting the glory of God, the more he's put into us, obviously he's made an impact on these creatures too because they're described in such a way where it's like a lion. 
like an ox, like a man, like an eagle. And all these animals, and again, if uh, any of you are tech savvy out there, uh, if you have a digital copy of the Bible, the control F hotkey lets you find words, type in ox or oxen, and especially in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, they are always referenced in regards to a servant or a creature that provides a service. And what's also interesting as well, the lion, the special reference and significance there, was a prophecy in Genesis 49 of the Messiah, the uh, lion of the tribe of Judah, which we'll discuss more next week, is in special reference to this prophecy given about Judah and his offspring, the king of Israel. Uh, in Luke, we're given, or excuse me, I'm jumping the gun here. Um, in the image of a man, we saw an image bearer of God, the one who shares his characteristics and unique attribute of a desire for relationships, among other things. And of course, eagles are first referenced in the book of Exodus as the only creatures that interact with heaven. Of course, I'm dancing around with the term here. Heaven can have one of three meanings, this atmosphere, the sky, the universe, or where God directly manifests his glory. But these earthly pictures of the kinds of things we associate with majesty, the Jews saw their king as the promised lion. Judah was the lion's whelp, but one's going to come that the scepter will be borne by forever. And this is further clarified in Second uh, Samuel. I'll remember the chapter here after my brain explodes. Uh, also note as well, when uh, I, I mentioned Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, we can talk about uh, the Gospels and their special emphasis on these things. Um, EnduringWord.com, David Guzik's commentary, he even goes to the rabbinic writings, the Jewish rabbis that were making comments about this stuff, how the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the lion, the ox, the eagle, and the man ish. Um, those were all significant in the characteristics of these creatures. For the sake of time, I just want to read through their significance. As we already read here, it just focuses on the eyes and gives one of them each characteristic and the six wings, which I wouldn't gloss over either. That's kind of cool. But I want to read the other time they appear in the Bible. And I want to place a special emphasis on this too, because there's a lot of varied interpretations about the significance of this, and so much so, not just that they end up being from the sublime to the ridiculous, but they also forget um, God's here, and that's what the cherubim were interested in too, so should we. I think, and this is just my opinion, once again, I made that special clarification about the eyes as well, something can just be cool, <laughs> unless the text explains itself further. Like we saw at the lampstand, it didn't leave that up to its imagination. That's important. That's the seven spirits of God. But when it goes into describing these creatures, there is significance. There is application. There is a biblically informed way of looking at these things. But when you look at them, you can just kind of look. <laughs> and I I'd want to emphasize that as our first rule. This is Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 5, where, note the common language, from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces. Each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze, so literally like they were hot. Uh, the hands of a man were under each of their wings on four sides. Each of the four uh, had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. As the likeness of their faces, they had the face of a man. 
each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, each of the four had the face of an eagle, thus were their faces. Their wings stretched upward, two wings of each touched one another, two covered their bodies, each one went straight forward, and wherever the spirit wanted to go, they did not turn when they went. As for the likeness of the creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning, and the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. So, very impressive. But what is their focus of attention? Are they looking for mirrors? Do they want to focus on their own glory? No, these are undoubtedly glorious creatures. Definitely more impressive than anything I think even Pokemon could cheer now. But you look at them, and they are looking at God. That might be a hint. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They are so enthralled with a being that not only has always existed and always will exist, but he's right there. (laughs) And that seems to be occupying their attention. It says in verse 9, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, again, not leaving much to guesswork, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, For what reason? For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So no doubt in anyone's mind here, I hope, that whoever's on that throne is God. He's called creator, he looks like the creator, he's treated like the creator, and he's given credit for creation. But if these creatures and these elders, which Bo again mentioned in passing last week, if you want to talk about it more on the program, feel free to call in. But Note that the heavenly scene here concludes with a picture of constant worship. And worship, by the way, worship, it means literally to bow down, to recognize who someone is. What do they acknowledge? What do they recognize about this one? The one who created and maintains it, like all of it. And Once again, the act of worship isn't limited to singing, but it includes it because we're creatures that live for nothing less. We acknowledge things as delicious, entertaining, beautiful, or lacking thereof. But God's the only thing that could encapsulate our intention so fully and so completely that it could occupy not just us, but those kinds of things forever and never leave them bored. So in conclusion to all of this, and if you have anything more to say in these last three verses, I, I leave the floor open to you. But what do you think is the significance of that? Is heaven going to be like the church service that never gets out? Or can we grant them that same hope with this concluding point? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to read a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. He, he wrote a fantastic book called Reflections on the Psalms. It's really excellent, and I, I would encourage you guys to pick it up and read it if you get a chance to do so. And in it, he talks about some of his difficulties with passages like this, because uh, he's like, man, I, I didn't like the Psalms were all about praising God. I didn't like depictions of heaven were depictions of worship where people are just locked in worship forever. He's like, is God just some like insecure diva who needs people to pump up his ego every five seconds? Like what's going on? And <clears throat> in reflection on the Psalms, he talks about the conclusion he comes to when he thinks about those things. And one of the things he realizes is that worship is spontaneous, right? True, true praise is spontaneous. 
when you like something, you just naturally praise it, right? When you eat something that's good, you naturally say, mm, that's, that's good. You know, people who are married tell each other that they love one another like 50 times a day. You know, it's not because they have amnesia and they're like, oh, did, does she love me? Uh, can you tell me again? You know, that's, that's not why it's happening. It's spontaneous. It's just, it comes out of your pores. You, you feel it so strongly that it almost has to come out. And this is how he concludes the statement. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but it's worth your time to meditate on this because it's really good. And it will help you understand these passages much better. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise doesn't merely express, but it actually completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is actually incomplete until it is given expression. And the, worthy, the worthier the object is, the more intense and powerful the delight would be. If it were possible... For a created soul fully to appreciate, that is to love and delight in the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously, at that very moment, give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude. It is along these lines that I find it easiest to understand the Christian doctrine that heaven is a state in which angels now and men hereafter are perpetually employed in praising God. This does not mean, as it can so dismally suggest, that it is like being in church forever. For our services, quote-unquote, both in their conduct and in our power to participate are merely attempts at worship, never fully successful, often 99.9% failures, sometimes total failures. We are not writers yet. We are merely pupils at the writing school. To see what this doctrine really means, we have to suppose ourselves to be in perfect love with God, drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by that delight, which then can finally flow from us incessantly again and again in effortless and perfect expression. Our joy no more separated from the praise in which it liberates and utters itself than the brightness of a mirror receives its separation from the brightness it sheds. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are one and the same. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to fully enjoy him. So when we worship God, this is why worship is so important. This is why we spend time fixating our mind on God. As Sean alluded to, anything you fix your mind on in this earth has diminishing returns because it is not glorious enough to hold your attention. It's not worthy enough to hold your attention. It could hold your attention for moments. And some things on this earth are glorious enough to hold your attention for decades but nothing is glorious enough to hold your attention forever. In order to have something that can hold your attention forever, to be glorified, to be so worthy that you could joyously, spontaneously worship this thing forever and never tire, this thing would have to be God. It would have to be eternally worthy, infinitely worthy. And that is the God we purport to serve. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you so much for how glorious and amazing you are. Your word is beautiful. It is so filled with not only truth, but just incredible aesthetic beauty that we could just spend time looking at, adoring, and wrapping our minds around in ways that brings pleasure and satisfaction and joy to us. So Lord, I thank you for the gift of allowing us to sit here and to enjoy who you are, to think about the things that make up who you are, Lord, your character, your power, your beauty, your glory, your amazing grace and kindness and love, Lord. I pray that we would be able to continuously go back to this type of thought process, Lord, that we would always be thinking about how good and glorious you are, God, for we know that our minds will be fixed on nothing less for the rest of eternity when we finally pass into your presence. We love you, Lord, and in your name, amen.